Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Cam, what film are we looking at this week? We are going to take a look at the Alfred Hitchcock classic, the 1959 film North by Northwest, which is often regarded as the first James Bond movie. Now, as we always do when we introduce our films, I will read you the synopsis from letterboxd.com. Here it is. It's a deadly game of tag, and Cary Grant is it. Advertising man Roger Thornhill is mistaken for a spy, triggering a deadly cross-country chase. That's it. Very concise and to the point. I like it. It says what it means. It means what it says. (laughs) So, um, Cam, what do you think about this film? This is a movie that definitely falls into my sweet spot. Um, I remember getting really into Alfred Hitchcock films um, after watching Psycho in my teen years. And I think Psycho is the one a lot of teens are drawn to (laughs) because it has a little bit of an edgier, you know, edge to it. (laughs) A bit of naughtiness. That's right. And, you know, everyone knows the, you know, stabbing scene. And so that was definitely a draw. But I I remember watching The Birds and uh, Rear Window and North by Northwest fell into that group too. Kind of, there's the big group of them that are like the, uh, his big blockbuster US films. And North by Northwest falls right into that. And I was a big fan of it. And I've seen it quite a few times since. Well, for me, on the other hand, I'm fairly sure I watched this film as a younger man when I went through one of my phases of, you have to watch these top 50 films of all time type jobs, if you know what I mean. Right. But for the life of me, I couldn't remember much about it when I went to rewatch it this week, apart from the crop duster chased later on in the film. That's all I could really remember. But going back into it, it all came flooding back to me. I, I, I really enjoyed the film. And again, it was one of those ones that hooked me in for the whole two hours and, and 10 minutes, which I was quite surprised by the run length as well, actually. I thought films of that era tended to be a lot shorter. Oh, not really. A lot of them were actually overlong. <laughs> I think also this is 1959 and televisions have begun to make their way out into people's homes. And so a lot of film studios, their way of combating, you know, the competition between TV, uh, their way of winning that war was to make their movies big. So basically something you could not see at home. And so often they would interpret that to mean these movies have to be like two and a half, three hours long. I mean, I struggled sitting through Avengers Endgame, which clocks in at just over three hours. This is actually still a, a nice breezy pace for two and a bit. But just in my head, I had like an hour and a half as, as the old style. I don't know why I thought that. But not that I'm complaining, because this film flew by, uh, well, pun intended. <laughs> and I mean, we should mention too to the folks at home that you are recording your part of this po- uh, week's podcast at Cary Grant's home in Bristol. Am I right? Um, well, sorry, listeners, I can pronounce the city correctly there. It's actually Bristol. Imagine it's an A at the end instead of an O, Bristol. That's my Canadian accent. Could, I, I would just like you to try that again, please, uh, before I get too many hate emails. Bristol. There we go. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course, I, I, I live in Bristol. No, I don't. I live in London, but I've never actually been to Bristol. I don't think about it. And I didn't actually know Cary Grant was from Britain. Oh, really? Until yeah. I, after I saw the film. Accent-wise, he, I think he pulls it off well. Well, I um, mean, I thought you have the same accent as Cary Grant, right? Uh, are we back on accents again? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's our fallback. Accent blindness, Cam Smith. <laughs> That's right. I am curious, though, as a Brit, when you hear that accent that Cary Grant's doing, like, what do you make of it? I, I, I remarked on this uh, to my better half when I was watching the film that it didn't seem particularly American, but it didn't seem British. It had a poshness to it that some might say has a, a British twang, I suppose. Um, and she pointed out quite rightly that there was a, a sort of a, a transatlantic accent that they used to try and use in those days. Is that, is that true at all? Yeah, that's actually the name for it too, the transatlantic accent. Um, a lot of movie stars were trained in it because you had so many actors coming over from Britain to work in American film. And uh, that was their way of kind of, I guess, you know, kind of operating right in the middle. But he, he delivers everything with a very 
dry tone that struck me as, as a British sense of humour, which is why I think I probably quite liked this film in that sense. Everything, he was very monotone. He was never really shouting particularly or excitable. Well, he was... Also, you have Alfred Hitchcock directing him, of course, too. So you have Cary Grant's famous delivery. I mean, people do Cary Grant impressions all over the place. And he was one of the, if not the biggest star at this time. And you have Alfred Hitchcock, who has a very wry sense of humor. And I think those two just worked really well. Him and Cary Grant did several movies together. Um, uh, there's at least one that we will probably tackle at some point in the future. So, yeah, it was, a, I think, just a really good pairing, especially when it came to, as you said, the wit and sense of humor. Moving on from there, did you, did you take a look at sort of how the film performed at the time or what it was up against? I did, yeah. Now, box office for the year of 1959 and just going back to kind of pre-70s eras gets a little tough because movies didn't open the same way they do now or really in the wake of Jaws. Um, back in the day, movies had platform releases, which meant they would open, you know, in like, I don't know, 12 theaters, and then they would just kind of slowly expand as they went, depending on popularity. So that really played havoc when it came to international markets. You know, a movie that opened in 1959 in, say, North America didn't open sometimes till like 1960, 61 overseas. So tracking a like top 10 box office of a given year pre-70s is pretty tough. Um, so I can tell you what I've got. Um, the domestic numbers were the ones I really could find because domestic was something they tracked much more than. Um, international numbers became much bigger as we got into the more expensive blockbusters of the 90s, really. That's where suddenly Hollywood really started looking at international numbers very seriously. Um, but for domestic numbers for North America, this movie cost $4.3 million in 1959 dollars. Um, and it earned $13 million. So it basically tripled its cost, which is great. Um, adjusted, that's about $290 million. Now, I have a worldwide number. The worldwide number was $468 million uh, adjusted. Um, and basically, it lost out for the number one spot. Ben-Hur dominated. Uh, Ben-Hur made, I'm going to let you guess, Scott. Um, adjusted, how much do you think Ben-Hur made um, worldwide? So we're, we're up against, was it 468 million, did you say? Correct. Ben Hur, 468 million. Let's go with around 750 million. Or just a little bit over that, uh, $2.3 billion. <laughs> oh, oh, so you could say it was a success. People really like that chariot race a lot. I mean, I said earlier about how, you know, they were looking to give competition to TV. That chariot race, you could not see on your small screen. And that's probably why that film also made that list of films I watched back in the day. Yeah, very much so. And so for the domestic box office for that year, Ben-Hur was number one. Uh, number two was Sleeping Beauty, the Disney film. Um, right. And number three was a comedy called Operation Petticoat. I don't know that people really remember that one super strongly, but that was a Cary Grant film. Um, and so Cary Grant had a really good year. North by Northwest came in at number seven sandwiched right between the Rock Hudson comedy Pillow Talk and um, the um, Douglas Sirk drama Imitation of Life. Um, the only other notable uh, film from this year that's worth mentioning is at number 10, Sean Connery, a very young Sean Connery, had one of his first hits with the movie Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Can't say I've heard of that one, but it certainly sounds like North by Northwest had a good year. It did, and it's a very interesting story because... North by Northwest was actually a comeback movie for Alfred Hitchcock. The year before, in 58, he had released the movie Vertigo, which, if you ask most film scholars now, or just, you know, real big cinephiles, they know Vertigo. Vertigo is one of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest films, if not the greatest. But it was actually a box office bomb at the time. It really underperformed, and Alfred Hitchcock took it quite personally, because it's, I mean, if you see it, it's one of his most personal films. And, um... He was really kind of like, oh man, I need some sort of comeback project. And so North by Northwest was the movie that kind of reminded audiences once again that Alfred Hitchcock, when he was you know, firing on all cylinders in their eyes, he was the best at what he does. And so it's interesting now where we sit in 2020, you know, North by Northwest and Vertigo are both regarded as two of the greats, but in the uh, late 50s, that wasn't the case. Well, I mean, in terms of the film then, how did the story come to pass? I've read something about 
it being inspired by a real life CIA plot or something along those lines? Do you know anything about that at all? Yeah. So basically what happened was um, Alfred Hitchcock had hired a writer, uh, Ernest Lehman, who was really hot at the time. Like Ernest Lehman had written Sabrina. He'd written The Sweet Smell of Success. He would go on to write The Sound of Music um, and West Side Story. Actually, I think he'd done, uh, yeah, he'd do that in a couple years as well. Uh, so this guy was just like one of the big writers in Hollywood. And he'd always wanted to work with Alfred Hitchcock and make the ultimate Hitchcock movie. And Alfred Hitchcock hired him to adapt a book called The Wreck of the Merry Deer, which is basically about a, uh, the salvaging of a wrecked ship and the, the drama and kind of twists that go along with that story. The two of them could never quite crack this book. And so along the way, you know, Ernest Lehman just said, you know, to Hitchcock, do you have any other ideas, something we could just work on kind of to cure our writer's block? And Alfred Hitchcock said he'd always had an idea about a mistaken spy identity and Mount Rushmore. He wanted something with someone crawling down Mount Rushmore. And so basically they just sat there and combined plot ideas. So they just started channeling ideas. There was a real life story, as you said, about a spy and about a CIA guy, I believe, wasn't it? It was either the CIA or something more European, perhaps. Right. It was, it was definitely based off of an actual plot where they had a, a cadaver that they dressed up and planted fake information on and created a fake identity for them to throw off uh, the opposition, I think maybe during World War One or Two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the decoy idea came from that. And it was just like the two of them basically just coming up with ingenious little gags, basically, that could work into this overall story. And they put it together. And James Stewart, who was one of Hitchcock's big collaborators, who'd made Rear Window with him um, and also Rope, uh, he really wanted to star in this movie. But James Stewart had also been the star of Vertigo. And one of Hitchcock's main reactions to the failure of Vertigo at the box office was to blame Jimmy Stewart and to basically be like, you know what, he was too old to be a leading man at that point. And I think it's really funny that he then runs to Cary Grant, who's basically the exact same age as James Stewart. I was going to ask, so they're, they're the same age, and yet he was too old. I guess Jimmy Stewart just always had maybe a more older man sort of energy, whereas Cary Grant, who's 55 in this movie, does have more of a younger, energetic sort of delivery and just carries himself in that sort of way. Is, is Roger Thornhill supposed to be 55 in the film? I would say no. I would say he's probably supposed to be in his 40s, maybe his early 40s. Because Eve Kendall is 24. Yeah, 26. 26. Yeah, 26, oh. yeah. Okay. But either way, that was definitely a sign of the era where the male leads are, like, significantly older. Um, and it is funny, though, like, Cary Grant would said to Hitchcock partway through this movie that this movie's a disaster. I've shot like three quarters of this movie. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Which I think and, is actually, is, it may well be something to do with the script, but it does have a lot of twists and turns throughout the film. And you are, especially the first time watching it, you will be genuinely surprised several times. And I think it actually works probably to Cary Grant's performance that he had no idea what was going on because the character doesn't either half the time. And it certainly uh, shows on screen. Yeah. And so the movie did walk away with some Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Screenplay, Art Direction, and Editing. So this was a big um, comeback. And we should also note as well that the movie, before being called North by Northwest, uh, the original title that I think Hitchcock and Lehman were kind of playing around with was The Man on Lincoln's Nose. I was hoping you'd mention that title. It's fantastic. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock has said it was supposed to be The Man in Lincoln's Nose, whereas Ernest Lehman says, no, no, it was The Man on Lincoln's Nose. So I don't know. We'll leave that to everyone to decide which they prefer. I think we're still robbed of the scene they were supposed to shoot with uh, Cary Grant hiding in the nose and then sneezing. <laughs> yes, the uh, the famed scene that Hitchcock had loved to tell journalists about. Yeah. Hey, even if it was a lie, I would love to have seen it because uh, that, that sort of film, that sort of scene suits the film, I would say. I'm actually surprised, say, like when Mel Brooks was doing High Anxiety, the Hitchcock spoof movie, he didn't just take that scene and shoot that scene. Like, I think that could have been really fun. No, I can't say I've seen the, uh, the Mel Brooks film, actually. But uh, is there anything else you have on the background of this film? Um, not really. I should note, though, the movie that they were developing, The Wreck of the Merry Deer, Hitchcock never did make it, but someone else did. I think the director's name was Michael Anderson, I think. Um, and it did come out the same year as North by Northwest, and it starred Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston, and that movie was a bomb. 
So Hitchcock chose wisely going with North by Northwest. Actually, interesting to point out, I suppose, now you've given me some background on the film, compared to GoldenEye last week, there's more heavy hitters in this uh, production. Obviously, Alfred Hitchcock, you've got Cary Grant, um, certainly the, the writer you mentioned as well, they're all, they've, they've all got a background and they've all got a good CV full of work and projects. And um, they're bona fide stars. Whereas yeah. last time, there's a lot of chance taking. Yeah, I mean, the Bond franchise has always been known for, you know, just hiring kind of unknown directors and just kind of playing it by ear that way. Whereas like Hitchcock loved, once he really got to Hollywood, loved working with kind of the best of the best. And when you look at his movies, I think that's part of the reason they've aged so incredibly well. So I think I'm going to take a bite out of this film now and then tell you what I think about it. Because I know you've definitely seen it a few more times than me. Right. I'm a huge fan of this film, which is two in a row now, which I'm happy with. But um, I saw the runtime on the screen and I was like, oh no, two hours, 15 minutes of a 1959 film. But straight away, you're, you're just swept up in it because and I'll tell you a little story straight away. There's a scene right at the beginning where Roger Thornhill was abducted, if you remember. Yeah. What I didn't hear was the bellboy in the background shouting out for George Kaplan. Right. So all I saw was him turning around to, to sort of summon the bellboy to send a telegram and then being taken by the two uh, henchmen. Um, and for the rest of the film, I was like, why did that bit happen? It was only on rewatching it again today that I actually noticed that the uh, bellboy was shouting for George Kaplan and then he raised his hand. And that's how the mistaken identity took place. Right. Yeah. So it was quite confusing the first time I watched it, I have to admit. Well, I do wonder, I am taking advantage of the fact that I've seen this movie. This is probably, I think, the fifth time I've seen it, fifth mm-hmm. or sixth. And of course, I know what to look for. But I do wonder how many audiences in 1959, sitting down, you know, this is right at the start of the movie, pretty much, um, would have missed just the detail of the, the bellboy calling out that name. That's a, a really good point. I actually wrote in my notes that I was really astonished just re-watching it last night, how very simple the setup for this movie is. Just the, the sheer act of him calling out a name, Cary Grant snapping his fingers, boom, the plot is off and moving. Like you think about movies nowadays, how they would take 20 minutes of setup or have a, uh, you know, like newscast opening the movie to explain everything and the situation. There's all these ways to, you know, relay exposition throughout openings of movies. And this movie does it so simply. It's insane. Well, you, you start off with, with Roger Thornhill and his secretary stealing someone's cab. Mm-hmm. And you just get a feel that the guy's a bit smarmy. He works in marketing, kind of, you know, loves himself a bit too much. And that sort of sets him up. But it's sort of kind of a redemption story from there on in as well. It is. I mean, you get the sense, you know, he talks later on about how he's been married twice and he was kind of boring, I guess. Although I would say he was probably more workaholic than boring. Like, I feel like his life was just all work all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you are right. Like, it does kind of teach him over the course of this journey how to be more adventurous, live more in an improvisational kind of way. And... I mean, you know, meet the woman ultimately of his dreams. But I think what's really fun about the Roger Thornhill character is like so often when we see movies nowadays, Hollywood makes this, you know, huge mistake when they cast leads in these types of movies, you know, the mistaken identity type movie to -hmm. make the lead character very bland because the idea is always, well, then the audience can project themselves on this very bland character. And I mean, Roger Thornhill is not bland. He is a very strange dude. <laughs> and nor is he someone you can really imprint yourself on because he, he doesn't seem like the everyman. He seems like he's kind of got it sussed out in his life. And then his life is turned upside down because of the events that happened. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously very uh, successful, but also there's the weird mother issues that come up over and over again that definitely make him a very eccentric character. I think where we relate to the character and the reason it works is that he's baffled by this spy plot all along and trying to figure it out. So he's right there along with us unfolding this spy plot. And so many movies throw us, the audience, into the spy plot with characters who understand what the plot is. And we Mm -hmm. have to piece it together. Whereas in this case, we get to watch another character who's flustered and annoyed and making wisecracks have to figure it out for himself. 
I have to admit, you know, he's sitting in the taxi cab. He's just been abducted by the henchman. He's talking about, oh, this is my first time being kidnapped and things like that. And it's the sort of thing you would do when you're nervous if you got kidnapped. Yeah. Or maybe try to escape, which he also tried to do as well. I, well, I love, yeah, how he's always trying to kind of talk him his way out of situations, but not really using a lot of, like, intelligence in terms of outsmarting people, more of just, like, getting annoyed and being surly with them and just making these uh, kind of barbs at their expense. Like, you know, they take him to meet um, basically this character who's posing as a, as a guy named Lester Townsend, and that's James Mason as the movie's villain. And I just love the entire time they're having this discussion. James Mason is really kind of not what not sure what to make of this guy who is he thinks is a spy and Cary Grant is saying like I'm not the guy but also just making all these like zingers at his expense and just making fun of the whole situation which you have to imagine if you're James Mason you're like what the hell is this guy even he gets exasperated with the whole thing because he uh, because Roger Thornhill wants to go back to the city to see his play and then um Philip Van Damme, who's obviously masquerading as Lester Townsend at the time, is saying, oh, no, there's plenty of theatrics happening in here right now. But then you're sitting at home watching this or in the theaters watching this, completely confused as well. Yeah, it's really hilarious. Like, Hitchcock knew how to do comedy really well and would work it into his mystery plots. And I think Cary Grant, I mean, the man's comic timing really can't be uh, undervalued. Like he was one of the great comedic actors of the time. He did a lot of screwball comedies. So, you know, he's doing movies like Bringing Up Baby or uh, His Girl Friday, tons of these types of movies. And he is has learned to do rapid fire comedic dialogue. And he's just bringing all of that energy to this, which could have been a cumbersome spy movie. Like I think it's his energy um, that really does propel this movie from scene to scene. So this is why I, I kind of got the whole Britishisms idea, because it's the sort of thing a British person would do when they're being abducted, is to make jokes and, and sarcastic comments the whole time. Right. Is, is that something that sort of comes across in sort of North American media? Do you get a lot of that as well? Um, I mean, there's definitely the snarky kind of comedy you get more, I I feel like it comes maybe in the eighties a lot where you had comedians like Bill Murray and stuff like that come around. They tended to make fun of situations more. I guess you see bits of that in like a Woody Allen kind of character as well in the seventies and sixties. So I I guess it is an American thing as well. Um, But there's something about the way that Brits do it. Whereas it's much more, um, Oh, I don't even know what the word... I guess it's a drier sense of humor, obviously. I mean, they are... Uh, you guys are known for having a drier sense of humor, whereas Americans or North Americans tend to be a little more, I guess, brash. Is that the best word? Yeah, or we, we tend to have more of a, a deadpan delivery, I would yeah. say. Um, whereas Americans, North American jokes tend to... Or when they come over here, when we see them, it tends to be a bit more... Uh, yeah, I, I, just, I guess brash is the correct term for it. But then... It, <laughs> That's just what swept me away with, with the performance the whole way through from Cary Grant was just even in moments where some people would be panicking, he's just there making wisecracks. Which is great. And I, I love that. And, you know, this movie has been referred to as the first Bond movie. And you can see elements of, because the version of James Bond in the James Bond movies is very different than the Ian Fleming novel creation. Mm-hmm. Um, that Bond isn't like, you know, he's not dropping quips. He's not... Uh, you know, kind of the uh, devil may care type necessarily that the that the movies show. And you can really see how much a movie like this could have inspired the James Bond movies in that he is making these quips. He is, he sort of has a little bit of an ironic distance from a situation that allows him to kind of comment on it, even though he's in grave danger. Yeah, it's not many times he actually makes it look like he's in danger. No, he might well, know it, but he's not giving it away that he's petrified particularly. Would you say he's ever truly scared in this movie? Maybe when the, the van's about to hit him, the, the petrol tanker? Sure, I think that would probably do it. Um, I, I would say you could definitely make an argument for the whole crop duster sequence. Um, but outside of that, like he seems pretty calm and composed even when he's going down Mount Rushmore, which would terrify the hell out of me. It's like he goes up there every weekend for a, a, a friendly jaunt up Lincoln's face. Yeah, pretty much. It goes down rappelling every weekend, yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I found weird, it might be a, 
a thing of the, the era, perhaps, was his closeness to his mother. Mm. I don't know that that's an era thing. That is a big Hitchcock thing, though. Hitchcock was always... Very, I mean, this movie has a lot of tropes of Hitchcock movies. You have, you know, the wrong man scenario of a guy being basically accused of a crime he didn't commit. Um, mm-hmm. You have the blonde woman who is kind of icy and can't quite be trusted. That shows up in a lot of Hitchcock movies. But the mother stuff is also there. It's obviously there in Psycho. It's there as well with the villain Bruno in Strangers on a Train. Uh, It's just one of those hallmarks that Hitchcock would constantly go back to. He had a lot of tropes that he very much enjoyed playing with. It's why he's considered one of the first, or one of the original great auteurs, is that his movies are so distinctly him at an era where a lot of the you know, filmmakers were studio craftsmen who were hired to come in and shoot the vision of the producer. Whereas Hitchcock, he has all these weird quirks he works into his stuff. And the mother very much feels part of that. And she's played by uh, Jesse Royce Landis. And um, it's pretty funny. She's only like seven years older than Cary Grant. But I mean, she's fantastic. She's so funny in this movie. He, uh, Roger, I should say, Roger Thornhill has the patience of a saint for his mother. He's searching the hotel room. He's trying to prove his innocence. He goes to the Townsend house and she's just there going, ugh, the whole time, just rolling her eyes in the corner. You, would, you must feel so exposed at that point. Well, I loved when she turns to the, uh, you know, the assassins who are in the elevator with them is like, are you trying to kill my son? <laughs> and they, they all burst out laughing. And, and Roger's the only guy like, no, seriously, they are trying to kill me, everyone. Come on. <laughs> To be fair, I have a little bit of sympathy for this woman. I mean, she's going to pick up her 40-something-year-old son at the police station, who's, as he says, gassed. <laughs> and I think it's hinted they're living together as well. I don't know. Um, well, they certainly spend most of their evenings together, so they're, they're very close. They are very close. Um, and he has a line later in the movie where he's talking to Eve, and he says something about how, like, I wouldn't even let my mother undress me. And I'm like, that is such a weird thing for a dude in his 40s to be saying <laughs> in like a seductive situation. In a very heated moment with a potential uh, lover and mention your mother. That's the best thing to do. That really stokes the fires of passion, I find. That's what I love about Roger Thornhill. He is a weird dude. And it's why he's so memorable as a character, I think. Now, you actually bring me on to uh, Eve Kendall, played by Eve Marie Saint. What did you think of the... I suppose, is she kind of like the prototype Bond girl? Is that, is that kind of how it's used going on? Sure seems like it, doesn't it? I mean, she, from the second she shows up in the train, you were just captivated by her. Well, at least I found anyway. And when they're having lunch in the diner and she, he lights her cigarette and she stops and takes a hand and blows out the match. You're just like, ooh, that's, that's just pure, what's the word I'm looking for? Sex appeal? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, what they're going for. Were you surprised at sort of how overt a lot of their dialogue was in a 1959 movie? Absolutely. I don't watch a lot of old cinema. I put my hands up to it. I'm an 80s child, and that's generally where my movies start. And openly talking about going back to her train cabin to bump uglies. Yeah, well, and there's the whole part where he says, you know, about making love, I, you know, you have to hide the fact you want to make love to a woman. And you're like, oh, wow, like 1959, he's dropping lines like that. They did redub a line of hers, though. She was supposed to say something about not making love on an empty stomach or on a full stomach, I should say. And they redub it over. So she says something about talking about love or something. But overall, like the dialogue here is pretty, uh, it must have been a little bit of a, whoa, like, what are we watching? kind of moment for audiences in 1959. I mean, there was the sex comedies, like I referred earlier. There's that movie um, Pillow Talk uh, that Rock Hudson starred in the same year. So they were kind of doing these sex comedies then, but they weren't quite as um, like sensual as this movie. Like quite, like Eve Kendall is a great character and I love how aggressive she is in this situation. She's obviously playing a role because she is undercover as someone the, um, the CIA has basically recruited to take down this Van Damme villain. But, I mean, she is playing the part to a T, and just the back and forth between her and Cary Grant is mesmerizing. Like, I give her, um, Eva Marie Saint, a lot of credit, because Cary Grant, at this point in his career, is a Hollywood legend. He's known for being the ultimate movie star. And this is a very young actress who is going toe-to-toe with him, and often 
she's the one grabbing the attention of the audience. I mean, yeah, from the second that they meet on the train. Now, you might be able to help me out a little bit here with the narrative. Obviously, mm. you've seen it a few more times than I haven't overall. She's on the train to go to Chicago, the 20th Century Limited train. Is she on the train and it, she happens to bump into him? So is it just another coincidence they bump into each other? No, she's there with Van Damme. Because there's a scene later on where she has him in her room and she sends the note to Van Damme, who's in a nearby room, saying, what do you want me to do with him? So I think she's acting on the part of him. Because at this point, yeah, Cary Grant's been framed for a murder at the UN. I love that murder, by the way, with the silent knife flying across a room <laughs> at a bustling you UN. You <laughs> just hear the thud. And then for some reason, Cary Grant goes and grabs the knife out the guy's back. And then there's a photographer right there to take his photo. <laughs> so many bad things happen to this guy in this film you feel bad that photo is amazing by the way just that deer in headlights look with a knife like, <laughs> but yeah so he is obviously on the run i think yeah she's definitely working for van damme at this point but she's also a double agent because she's also reporting back to the cia but we also see the cia doesn't quite know what's going on yet because they're just figuring out that this guy is like kind of bumbled into their investigation so but then she's not to know that he was going to be on that train. She just happened to be on that train with um, Van, Van Damme. Damme. Yeah. So there is still a coincidence factor. Oh, of course. Yeah, I think there... I mean, that's the, the kind of the fun of this movie is that so much of it is basically... I mean, we are in the Cary Grant position and all the CIA people seem really world-weary and are just kind of like, yeah, 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 we know what we're doing. And I feel like it's almost like a confidence thing for the movie just to have these characters be like, trust us this all makes sense and us in the audience going i mean i guess well I, I mean they seem to know what they're talking about yeah and when you first see that sort of board of people in the cia with the the professor as the head of the table and they seem to be in complete control of what's going on it's like the, the the puppet masters almost but then by the end of the film they kind of are reliant on what roger thornhill does for them yeah i mean roger thornhill despite being kind of a bumbler is actually a really good, I'm not going to say spy in the realistic sense of the word, but a really good like celebrity secret agent like James Bond. <laughs> it's almost as if he had a second career waiting for him and this is when he first discovered it. Because he's good at being very improvisational, you know, mm -hmm. basically pivoting when he has to. We see there's a scene in an auction where he discovers Van Damme with, um, with Eve and how he gets out of that situation, you know, basically making a laughing stock of himself at this auction, which is a hilarious set piece. But just the fact that he can come up with these ideas and always manage to make his way to safety and even investigate things. There's a scene where Eve's taking notes on a hotel pad and he goes and shades over the pad to find the address to get to the auction in the first place. So he's not dumb. Like he's a very smart dude. It's almost as if he has all the skills to be a spy. He just was never picked to be a spy. Well, do you think after the events of this movie, does he continue on in some sort of intelligence work or does he just go back to his normal life? You have to think that the CIA must have tapped him up or whoever was the main organization behind with the professor. It would seem like he would be a good candidate because, I mean, his ability to get things done was actually superior to their way in a lot of, in, in a lot of ways because you know, they were just going to send Eve off on a plane with uh, Van Damme to potentially die, you know, in service to her country. Whereas you look, he takes down this entire ring. They think probably by accident, but a lot of it is a certain amount of foresight on his part to, you know, accomplish all these aims. Now, I, I will say about his budding spy career, he does have one major flaw off the bat, is that his face has been all over headlines around the United States. I don't know. Is that that much different than James Bond, who people are like, oh, hey, it's uh, you know, famous super spy James Bond. He seems to only be known within the, the sort of the circles of the bad people. I suppose that's probably what you don't want to be known in. You're, you're probably right. But uh, he was he was definitely newspaper news for at least a few days. And then, although, to be fair, he was also killed. Yeah. Speaking. George Kaplan was, was shot. Spoilers later in the film. Maybe he could, he could turn that into a career. Maybe. I mean, I don't see why not. Uh, he seems, although I can see maybe after the stress of this situation, maybe he's just like, 
I'm good. I'm good. Although he says my life was too boring and he seems to come alive over the course of this movie. So maybe that's something he does want to maintain. And I don't know, does Eve seem like she wants to settle down into in 1959, what would have been like a domestic life? I don't think so. You get the impression, um, maybe at the end of the film, you certainly get the impression that it's not over between them. And there's obviously a proposal and that's what they're uh, going off on a little train journey together, but you'd think they're going to do more things together in the I future. I would think but, so. Yeah. I think one thing is for certain, and that he is not a genuine idiot. <laughs> I love that line. I love when that woman at the auction calls him that. Um, it's, it's so brutal. It's like, you, sir, are a genuine idiot. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's cutting for 1959. He's taken a knife to bury me with it. It's horrible. <laughs> I love there's a scene when they're in the woods. Do you remember where it's after the um, faked assassination of um, Roger Thornhill at the um, at the uh, Mount Rushmore Visitors Cafe or whatever it is? Um, yeah. But uh, they're in the woods and he's talking to her across this distance with all these trees in between them. And we see over the course of the conversation, they basically are moving inwards as basically these, you know, obstacles between the two of them disappear and so they're together at the end and then they're the ones kind of running hand in hand you know at the end through the bushes um in the you know escape from um van damme's house it, it very much shows that these two are basically removed the obstacles and have kind of become equals in some ways and so i like the idea that he is maybe considering joining her in the spy world at the end you know i don't know i like it one impression i think you get from the film is he is not short of money. No, I think advertising he is execs throwing it everywhere. Oh yeah, I think uh, Roger Thornhill just just fine, you know. And considering he's been married twice, um, that says something a lot too. Because I think he would have probably had to pay money, and so this guy must be doing pretty well uh, to still be going on and apparently just throwing money all over town. Now, with Philip Van Dam. Did you, I, obviously I can see that his name is Philip Van Damme, you, you can see it in, in the credits, but I don't remember him ever being called Philip. That, no, they, they might have early in the movie, maybe once, but I don't think so, because they, you're right, they do refer to him just as Van Damme throughout pretty much the entire duration of the movie. Hmm. And then you've also got, um, a surprise to me, because I recently watched Ed Wood. Yeah. You've got Martin Landau turning up as Leonard. Yeah. which I, I, I popped for. I'd forgotten he was in this film. Mm-hmm. And he, he's quite a force as well. He doesn't do as much as, as most henchmen tend to do. It's more like but an he, advisor, I'd say. He does have some streaks, though, of like an early James Bond henchman, doesn't he? Yeah, he's not the mustache-twirling villain, but he's certainly the, the muscle. Yeah, and he's really fun. He's an interesting character, and this is something that Hitchcock would work in a lot with his villains. It's a little problematic viewed now where he would work in basically queer coding, where the characters, the, the male villain characters would have basically stereotypical qualities that would be assigned to someone like a, a gay male. And you see that in Psycho, you see that in Strangers on a Train. And you see it with his character too, where he has lines about um, his women's intuition and Van Damme saying he's jealous of Eve and things like that. And that's was very much um, a popular trope in older cinema for villains, but it's something that thankfully we've moved past, but it is not fully, fully, um, you know, on the nose with this character, but those shades are definitely there. See, I didn't really read it that way, but I, I assume that's what Alfred Hitchcock was going for. I, I heard the line of women's intuition. I just assumed that was more of a just phrasing really that he just had, maybe he was making a small joke in the phrase, but no, I suppose I could see it. He, yeah, I know a lot of um, critical readings since and years that have gone on since this movie's been out have written about how there is sort of an un, un, uh, unresolved romantic tension between Van Damme and um, the Martin Landau character, uh, Leonard. Um, I think you could write it that way. I don't think it's fully on the nose. I don't think it's a, you know, if you didn't see that, you're obviously oblivious. Um, I think there's enough there that you can write about it and talk about it if you want. But I think like with a lot of Hitchcock's tropes, um, some of them are more suggested than others or some are more emphasized in certain movies than others, but it's definitely a, it was definitely a thing that he would often fall back on. And I mean, even the Bond movies do that as well later on too. When we talk about some of the Bond henchmen, for example. I mean, if it was ever to be 
remade or anything like that. And they did sort of go all in on the Leonard character being in love with uh, Mr. Van Damme. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have written the dialogue any differently. I don't think it needs to be any more overt. No, I, I well, would love to be loud. I think at that point and, and it overdoing it almost. Well, exactly. Like I love the subtlety to the movie. Like that's the thing, like Alfred Hitchcock, he can be on the nose with his tropes, but like he doesn't write like overtly, you know, kind of like ham fisted movies. Like his movies always have an elegance. There's a class and sophistication to them. So, you know, a character like Leonard completely works organically within the movie without feeling like a weird byproduct of a different era. He just kind of folds completely into the world of the movie. And, uh, you know, no one else addresses their sexual preferences in the film other than what they do in their actions. Right. And he he does that, I suppose, in his actions as well. Yeah. So it, he, he could well have been written as a gay character then. It's just not something you really did in cinema at that time, I suppose. I am just very intrigued by the Leonard character because he is incredibly loyal to Van Damme. But we see at the end, Van Damme's going to take off on a plane with Eve to go God knows where to disappear. Leonard's staying behind. And I, you get the sense that like Leonard definitely is struggling with this because, I mean, Van Damme calls him out on that specifically. And even if it was just like a, a boss and, you know, the underling situation, you would be annoyed that someone you've served for X amount of time it's just abandoning you now. Yeah. For someone I, he hasn't known very long. And when, I mean, Cary Grant takes off with the microfiche and Leonard's pursuing him down um, <laughs> Mount Rushmore, you have to be really dedicated because there's that scene where Leonard's like hanging on this like incline and then falls. And I'm like, oh, that looks awful. <laughs> that looks so awful. <laughs> yeah. At what point do you go, ah, this isn't really worth it. He was leaving me anyway. Van Damme's a little stuffy anyway. Who cares? <laughs> There's plenty more fish in the sea. I'm out of here. <laughs> That's right. Now, we have to talk about, of course, the crop duster sequence, which is one of the most famous sequences in cinema history. Uh, Empire Magazine, uh, from your neck of the woods, voted it the greatest movie scene of all time. So it's obviously got a fair amount of prestige. I, when it started playing the first watch I did, I, I knew it was coming because you see the crop duster in the background, which I think was a nice little move there by Alfred. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it builds the drama, and and then the the guy on the other side of the road is waiting for the buses. Oh, that's odd. You don't. There's no you know crops to dust, and then there's nothing about it for a little while, and then you get you know a fucking plane flying at you. And it's a bummer that I think they really marketed the plane um, attacking Cary Grant even back in the day, because it's the sort of sequence where you don't really know what's going on. He's standing there at this desert road. There's this guy across the street who seems suspicious, who could be Kaplan, and you get Cary Grant just like eyeing this guy. And I love the suspense, how it's so drawn out. I think it's a seven-minute sequence, um, but just waiting as cars go by, you do not know what to expect. And yeah, there's a plane in the background, but what does that even mean? The plane is so far back there that it isn't uh, you know, front and center and what you're really looking at. So I love that it's always kind of lurking and then finally attacks, you know, in some ways it's almost like the shark from Jaws with just, you know, the, the plane in the background is the same thing as like the musical score building. Mm. And isn't it so refreshing to watch something that just lets a scene breathe? Oh yeah. Like I love that Alfred Hitchcock builds his set pieces, um, you know, the auction, um, this sequence around slowly building tension. And I mean, it takes a great filmmaker to do that because, you know, a, a bad filmmaker, you're just filming Cary Grant standing in a basically an empty <laughs> patch of land for seven minutes. Um, I think audiences would get frustrated, but Alfred Hitchcock knows how to edit it and just basically, you know, ratchet up the tension as the sequence keeps going. And not to mention the pilot is, at least maybe until his demise shortly afterwards, is still quite smart about it because he gets outwitted when Roger jumps into the, the cornfield. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, oh, hang on. I've got this dust that I can just smoke him out. And it works. And the villains never feel dumb. I mean, they can be a little bit of like, there's the two that, you know, pick him up at the start who are more of a thug type. I think actually, you know, the one who had like the receding hairline um, and was wearing a hat at the start. I think he is supposed to be in the crop duster. Oh, really? Is that? Huh. I, I think so because he never comes back. They refer to two people dying in the crop duster. And the other guy, the guy who's more squinty, he comes back and is at the um, Mount Rushmore sequence. He falls off Mount Rushmore. 
whereas that other guy disappears. So I think we're supposed to infer that he was in the crop duster um, with someone else. Well, I suppose it makes sense then to introduce other people to die in the scene. But then again, you don't ever see it and it could just be anyone. So Yeah, this is my a little bit of my own fan fiction, maybe to explain an actor who had to leave, <laughs> maybe because he had another contract job. But I like to think he was in the crop duster at the time. Well, we'll add that to the uh, cam fiction record. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I love the sequence. And you can see how a lot of the James Bond movies would be built around set pieces. And this movie does the same thing. Like, I always think when they're putting together Bond movies, they write the, their set pieces are going to be and then figure out the plot from there. And that's kind of the way this works. Like this whole um, crop duster sequence. I mean, James Bond pretty much, I'm going to say paid homage to, but you could also say ripped off with uh, From Russia With Love with the helicopter sequence at the end of that movie. We'll, we'll go with a friendly homage. I think that sounds nicer. I think it was because, I mean, the Broccoli's, when they were putting together James Bond, they wanted Cary Grant to star in Dr. No. Oh, I didn't know that. So was that one of their first choices? Yep. That was who they went to. They were like, this guy can be Bond. And I have to believe it's because of this movie, uh, very largely. Um, there's shades in some other movies, too. I could see them looking at Notorious um, from the 40s. But um, yeah, they went to him and he said he would do it, but he was only interested in one movie. Whereas they want to do a series, obviously. Sure. So speaking of connections to Bond, obviously we mentioned last time that this film lends a lot to the Bond films that come start from after this, basically. Is there anything that you noticed in terms of tropes? I really went out of my way to look for them this time. And I mean, you referred to it earlier. Eve is very much like a kind of cool Bond, um, like Bond girl, um, mm -hmm. because she's very like capable has an actual like serious profession she's a spy which elevates her you know in terms of the types of roles a lot of actresses were getting at this point in time and that's something you hear talked about with bond movies was you know the bond girls aren't always portrayed the best necessarily as characters but they often had real jobs scientists uh doctors spies that sort of thing eve kendall feels in line with that and she has the playfulness with uh, Cary Grant, you would see in the back and forth between James Bond and uh, some of the other actresses who would uh, accompany him in those films. Um, another one that I noticed, uh, train travel. Um, the depictions of train travel in this movie remind me a lot of the stuff we'd see in From Russia With Love, um, The Spy Who Loved Me. Did that one pop out to you? Not so, uh, Funny now that you mention it, I can see the connection. Uh, I, it didn't jump out to me when I was watching the film, but to be fair, I only remember seeing it once a long time ago. So this was just, I'm just sort of taking it in. I wasn't really digging too much into my first viewing. Right. I mean, you can certainly see like the, the suave, sophisticated manner in which Roger carries himself at all times. Doesn't really show that he's ever really flummoxed by anything, um, which I think Bond generally carries through. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's very rare you see Bond look scared. Except um, Bond looks terrified in that scene with the dude in the bear mascot outfit in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That's the only time Bond ever looks scared. <laughs> I think we'd all have trouble with that. <laughs> I think so. Um, this movie also has a really strong emphasis on style. Everyone is dressed to the nines. I mean, that suit. Can we talk about that suit? Oh, you like the suit? Oh, I need to get me three of those. <laughs> um yeah they um ha have said that that suit um was basically used by tom cruise and collateral like that's the sort of look they were going for in that film where he played an assassin oh uh, yeah very yeah, similar look. yeah and also this movie also you know we referred to it earlier but there's a, a very strong emphasis on sex basically as well as like entendres and quips and that is of course all over the james bond movies Although it is kind of different in the first few Bond films. I, I, I tend to find Sean Connery's turn at the wheel. It, he's a bit more of a womanizer. Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't get the feeling that Roger Thornhill is particularly a womanizer. I don't think he's a womanizer, but he is obviously irresistible in a lot of ways. Because there's a scene later in the movie where he has to like cut through another uh, woman's, I guess, apartment or something. And she goes, stop. Stop. <laughs> I never he, got his reply to that. He's, he's like, just, huh? He just, he just like waves his hand, like, leave me alone. 
that, that's the fact that he goes in and she's like, stop. And he's like, no, 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 don't worry about it, darling. And then she's like, stop. And he goes, huh? It's like, what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> he walks out of the room. Well, I mean, I love that, you know, James Bond is cool. Like, that's the whole thing about James Bond is he has to be cool yeah. at all times. Whereas, like, Roger Thornhill isn't really that cool. He's dressed really cool. And Cary Grant as an actor is very cool. But Roger Thornhill is kind of a mess. <laughs> and I think he's really neurotic, too. I wouldn't be surprised that, uh, apart from the fact that he hangs out with his mother at the age of 44, which, you know, listeners, if you hang out with your mum, I'm all for it. Mums are the best. But mm-hmm. sometimes you've got to hang out with other people, too. Um, but I would not be surprised if he had, like, a, a weekly D&D game he went to. Well, maybe not in the 50s, but uh, if he lived now, perhaps. Okay, what's the 1959 version of D&D? Like, what is something nerdy that you would be doing in 1959? Maybe, like, getting together and reading, like, Atomic Age science fiction stories to each other? Oh, it's got to be something like that. Or, or perhaps he writes them, and he's always, Ooh. like, the hero in them or something like that. So he's kind of writing the stories that um, George McFly was writing in Back to the Future, the original. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. Does he make yeah. his mom read them? No, he makes his mom act them out with him. Oh my God. I want to see this spin-off movie. And for some reason, she's always reading the part of the love interest. <laughs> I, I don't know why my brain went to that. You guys can fill in the blanks there. I think the text of North by Northwest supports this interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, just with the Bond tropes, the other thing, um, set pieces we've talked about, this movie has, is all set piece based, but also um, a emphasis on outlandish assassinations <laughs> because it's really not that hard to kill Cary Grant's character. All Van Damme has to do is, you know, shoot him in the head, basically. Um, but ultimately what they do is they send him to the middle of nowhere to get chased by a crop duster. It's a lot of efforts that really take more work than they're worth. Yeah, you would think, you know, okay, we could just off him and chuck him into the ocean. Well, no, 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 no. We're going to ply him with scotch and then make him drive himself off of a cliff. That's how I drive normally. Oh, uh, with a whole glass of, uh, of bourbon in your arm. <laughs> Not that part, just the squinting and... <laughs> careening all over the road. Cam wishes to clarify, listeners, he does not drink. Drive. It's true. Or drive. Yeah. Or drink. One. Or drink. <laughs> so, yep, yeah, I'm cleared oh. of, all, of all charges. <laughs> Case closed. Pure, pure ineptitude on my part. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. That's right. Genuine idiots here. I have a follow-up to that, then. The character of Van Damme we see here, um, he seems very, like, urbane, um, sophisticated, do you think he's like a dangerous man? Or does, because they refer to him as an importer-exporter of government secrets. So he's definitely, you know, working for the other side, sending information back and forth. But do you think he is like a deadly adversary? I think he has the capacity to get someone else to do dirty work for him. But I hmm. could never see him doing it. Yeah, he's definitely a mastermind type. And I feel like he only kills when he has no other alternative. I mean, yeah, in terms of tying up loose ends, if he knew that uh, Eve was a double agent, and yet he still takes her with him, uh, he does say he's going to throw her out, or he hints he's going to throw her out of the plane, I suppose. Yeah. It probably would have been a lot cleaner just to get rid of her earlier on. I have real questions whether he would have thrown her out of that plane too. Well, I mean, she's already bewitched uh, Roger Thornhill to that point to actually want to go back into danger. That is true. He has true. a perfectly easy out at the airport. He could just leave, but he is drawn back in. Yeah. I think like the thing with Van Damme is he is really in love with Eve. So I, I think she probably still could have talked him out of it. Like I think he still was kind of under her spell, as so was Cary Grant. I mean, obviously, Eve has that effect on people. Yeah, I think ultimately, Van Damme would risk it for a biscuit. Mm. And yeah, you're right. I think he would have kept her and found a way to make it work and some sort of elaborate, uh, 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 you know, keep your enemies closer Yeah. I had one more Bond trope. I'm curious if you consider this to be one or not, but the character of the professor, played by Leo G. Carroll, is this very like droll CIA guy. Do you see any similarities to M? Maybe in the sense that he seems to know what's going on all the time mm-hmm. and has, again, that cool, calm and collected manner. But I think also there's a little bit of 
I know obviously Q is not in charge of direction for Bond, but that sort of he seems to have a little bit of a quippiness to him as well. Yeah, I don't I know. That was, more, that was more of a Judy Dench M than a original M. Yeah, I don't know that I would say that that's a trope they transported over the James Bond movies of the portrayal of M comparing him to the professor. But there is a, a similar sort of, um, you know, he's kind of the administrative dude who's kind of seen it all, but has a little bit of a sense of humor because M always had these little twinkles of humor, especially the original version. I suppose there's that detachment as well that carries over that, um, you know, an oversight, I suppose, would give you that in time. You see, the professor seems quite weary with everything. And I suppose M does have that too. Yeah, I'd say that's there. Um, so we'll put that one maybe a question mark at the end of it there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, definitely you can tell that this movie did pave the way for James Bond. Like it's all over the screen. There's no question about it. It is like the if you were hiring a director to film the first Bond film, you would say, hey, go watch this first. Yeah, and even the ending where we have the famous shot of, I love the transition between him pulling or trying to pull Eve up on Mount Rushmore to him pulling her up on the bed. Like that is a great edit. Whoever came up with that idea is pro I mean, I know Hitchcock storyboarded all his movies in advance. So he probably came up with that in advance, but I mean, it's an amazing transition. And then the scene of the train going through the tunnel. I mean, <laughs> that feels very almost like Roger Moore, James Bond. I I'm just picturing the ending of Moonraker. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking Moonraker. Um, I'm also thinking the end of The Spy Who Loved Me. Also, I think the end of uh, For Your Eyes Only a little bit too with the parrot in some ways. Uh, it's definitely a big thing in especially the more comedic James Bond movies. And uh, it's an amazing shot. And I would love to know how many audience members in 1959 all laughed at that. See, uh, this is interesting as well because I, I thought about this film afterwards and kind of got that. But at the time, I just thought, oh, it's a train. Maybe yeah. that just shows my naivety. I don't know. It's quite a subtle hint at what uh, happens next. It is. I mean, it's a visual joke that I think I had seen exploited so many times before I saw the movie. The Simpsons, I remember using that gag. Um, some other, like, you know, kind of sitcoms and stuff would play around with that kind of imagery. So it was not a new thing when I saw North by Northwest. And I think I may have even been aware that this was the ending. But if I'm an audience member in 1959, I wonder if I'm like just picking up on it at all. I could see more than half of the theater walking out and not getting that at all. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of Hitchcock movies though. And why they held up so well is that his ability to inject, you know, wit and little jokes throughout the movie, you pick up on some, you know, the second, third, fourth time you watch them, the, everything's not all front and center or ultra obvious. So uh, that's what I've always loved about his work. I would say though that, that half or over half of the theater that walked out not getting that hint were uh, probably the same people as me who didn't hear the line at the beginning and were then <laughs> somewhat confused the entire way through. I think it's totally okay to be confused the whole time. I seem to recall the first time I saw it not really following the plot. Like this time when I was taking my notes, I was really trying to connect the dots place to place and you know plot point by plot point it works out pretty well i think like i think it's tough to really get annoyed at this one being a little you know fly by the seat of its pants when i'm a big james bond fan and those plots often make no sense whatsoever i think this one is at least doing the work to explain everything oh yeah once you sit back and sort of look at it and go oh oh it all connects these all these dots go together but then to be fair i'm also used to being um completely surprised and confused for most of my life so this is this is a normal day for me anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you asked me about this last week, so I'll ask you. Is there any particular set piece that was your favorite? I mean, for me, the crop duster. But it, that is so head and shoulders above anything else in the movie that it's almost unfair because it's been isolated as this legendary piece of film since. So I'm going to pick one kind of aside from that. And for me, at least on this viewing... I think a lot of people are going to expect me to say the Mount Rushmore. I'm going to say the auction scene. I think the auction scene is incredibly funny. There's tension. And I love just the rising sort of chaos of him throwing out these BS bids for like art objects. Like to me, that one is so much fun. Eight. No, eight dollars. 
<laughs> I think the junk isn't worth any more than that. Right, yeah. And just like the in- increasing like uh, flustered state of the auctioneer. I think in that case, I was also going to try and choose a non-obvious one. But I think you just picked my backup. So I'm going to go with my original, which is the crop dusting scene. Yeah. It, obviously, it was sort of spoiled by the cover art and this thing has been replicated in, in other films and you tend to see this clip if anyone mentions this film anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's so well done. It's a, it is. It's a, it's a quiet action sequence. It's not like, there's not tons of explosions. There's a little bit of machine gun fire. There's great miniature work at the end. Almost seamless, really. And this is 1959, 58, 57, I guess, when it was being put together. Probably 58 they're shooting it. Yeah, shooting yeah. in 58, yeah. And you mentioned the, the silence too. Like when that score does kick in though, Bernard Herrmann's score with that North by Northwest theme, boy, is that effective. That is, I mean, it's not quite James Bond cool, but it's up there. I mean, no one needs me to compliment Alfred Hitchcock, but good work. That's right. He directed the hell out of this film. <laughs> I'm sure he's happy to hear it. He did. And I mean, he followed this movie up with Psycho and the birds. So he definitely was on a roll at this point too. So I guess that leads us to the inevitable question, Cam. Does this film make the knock list? I say 100% yes on my side. Um, I think for me too, I have maybe some knowledge you don't in that I I know we're going to cover a lot of, a a fair number of late career Hitchcock spy and espionage films. And for me, I think there's definitely a handful I can think of off the top of my head that are hard no's. And to me, if I'm going to represent the kind of the latter half of Hitchcock's career and his work doing spy films, to me, this is the best one. And so I think it's an easy yes for me. Okay. This is interesting because I'm going with no. Okay. And why is that? I, I thought long and hard about this and I had to go back and watch the film again to reaffirm my point. And for the listeners, if we do reach a point where we butt heads on the knock list, what we tend to do is try and put our points across to each other and see how we feel about it. So here is my pitch. Roger Thornhill isn't a spy. He maybe operates as one at the very end of the film, but for most of the film, he is just playing catch up and he is not really an agent in what's going on. Now, Eve Kendall is a spy. But the main character the film is based around is not a spy. He is a person that's caught up in mistaken identity and sort of pulled into this world of of espionage and intrigue. And that, for me, was enough to knock it down. But isn't that also a trope of so many spy movies we're going to cover where it's someone being drawn into the world of the spy? Like, I don't know. Like, to me, I, I definitely did take that into account. But I was also just thinking, like, you know, I can think of some movies coming up that we're going to do where the lead characters are not necessarily spies by trade, but get pulled into that world and have to function as spies. And I mean, aren't you kind of not a spy until you have to become one, which he kind of does at a certain point by teaming up with the professor and CIA to basically get to the end game here. I mean, cause Eve is a spy. We see her in the movie, but she wasn't always a spy. She was pulled in by the CIA. So you've got me here mulling now. This is, uh, this <laughs> That's is, the whole point. Yeah, this is this is a hard one. Um, I'm never really one to concede defeat, but I can very much see your point. And this is this is where my debate was, and why I had to go back and watch it again before we recorded this. Because yes, he's not a he isn't a spy. He's a, he works in you know, marketing and such. Mm-hmm. But you're right; he does get pulled into the world, and I I get the feeling that the spy game is not something you particularly choose. Right. It's probably something that does choose you. And that's very much what happened to Roger in this, in this film. And he's successful at it. And like we said earlier, there's a good chance he probably does end up working with whoever this organization is afterwards. Yeah. And to so, me, also just as a, as a side note too, like I, for me, like I feel like it's tough to lead this one off because of the fact it's so influential on the most successful spy franchise of all time. But it makes it very hard for me to go like, well, you know, I don't know. Because when you look at its impact on James Bond and creating the James Bond template, I, I think you kind of have to give it the points for that. I suppose when you, when you take it back a step and just sort of go, what is the knock list? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I mean, what's the official definition for us, Cam? Well, it's our definitive list of 
spy classics. It's the movies that, you know, if you were to recommend someone a spy movie, you would go to the to our knock list and say, without argument, these are the great spy films. And if you had never seen a spy film in your life and someone put this in front of you and then you watched a couple of ones afterwards, would you say this is probably the, of the better types of spy films out there? I think this is one of the great examples of the fun spy movie. I mean, it's obviously not playing on the same sort of, you know, in the same sort of arena as say like something like uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it's, mm-hmm. which is much more serious. Um, but it is a uh, certain type of fun spy movie that would become huge in the 60s and continues on to this day. So in that sort of, uh, you know, subgenre of spy movies, yeah, I think it's probably near the top and would probably make people interested in seeing more of this. You know what, Cam? Honestly, I think you've got me. Oh, wow. Well, have no fear. I'm sure I will crumble on some too at some point. <laughs> That's going to be the fun. I, I'm British. I am very good at queuing and arguing with people. That's what we do best. You're a lovely Canadian guy who, who wouldn't argue with a fly. So you've managed to out-argue me on this one. So yes, my official recommendation is that yes, this goes on the knock list. You have awesome. beaten me, sir. Very nice. And of course, anyone who wants to see the knock list can go to letterboxd.com slash spyhards. That's where we store the knock list. And we'll also just have the list of all the movies we've covered. So you can just hop over there and see it, you know, right on your computer screens or phones, visualized. Which means there's two yeses from us. North Mm -hmm. by Northwest is officially on the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on the film is complete and marked as classified. Cam, what film are we looking at next week? We are going to tackle 2002's The Bourne Identity. Not the 1980s Richard Chamberlain TV movie. The Matt Damon vehicle which launched a franchise. So listeners, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Born Identity and let us know your thoughts on the film on social media. And speaking of social media, you can find us at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. Mm -hmm.